0: this is our american stories and this actually sounds like a little bit of the synthesizer beats from don't you want me baby is this some
1: uh, 80s pad music jesse no it's actually chromio it's pretty new stuff so it's new old stuff. Yeah, it's the new like throwback hi-fi synthesizers. Yeah, cool. A little more funky baseline.
0: Yeah, I'm liking it. <laughs> Are we going to be talking to these guys? You said we're going to be talking to the Cromio guys. Yeah, soon we'll have them on. Okay, great. That's a it's like a big. So what do we say? We can't say we can't say the F word anymore. So we say, uh, um, what do we say? Ch- weight challenged weight challenged. Arab. Oh, fat. Some, yeah. yeah, right. Fat. So There's, a, there's an overweight <laughs> Arab guy and then there's like a Jewish guy and they, they get on the stage and make this music and I'm looking forward to talking to those guys. Absolutely. Yeah. Playing some of Jesse and Alex's favorite music here on Our American <laughs> Stories. And recently one of our producers came across a blog post at herviewfromhome.com By the way, that's... Uh,
1: Why were you there? Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know.
0: Well, yeah, but that's okay. It's not my mom liked on Facebook. Faith, this wasn't you? This wasn't you? No, Faith is going, not me. (laughs) And by the way, this is an online woman's magazine with daily articles about family, kids, fashion, health, recipes, faith. I mean, it sounds like a a good site. And there was a post from Debbie Bazden, and the title of the post is sure to grab your attention, and the content is sure to pull at your heartstrings, and for good reason. Debbie agreed to read it for us, and here she is with her piece called stop being a butthole wife
2: stop being a butthole wife no i'm serious end it let's start with the laundry angst i get it the guy can't find the hamper it's maddening it's insanity why why must he leave piles of clothes scattered the same way that the toddler does right i mean grow up and help out around here man There is no laundry fairy. What if that pile of laundry is a gift in disguise from a God you can't yet see? Don't roll your eyes. Hear me out on this one. I was a butthole wife until my husband died. The day my husband left earth for heaven, all of my marriage problems vanished. There was no one to fuss at, negotiate with. Or play possum at bedtime. You know, when you pretend you're asleep to bypass sex. Marriage is designed to be a reflection of Christ's love for his people. It's supposed to be beautifully harmonious and intimate. How often I screwed that up with bickering and manipulating. I wanted a perfect husband who acted how I wanted. And if that didn't happen, well... Butthole wife was in full effect. If only he could understand how right I was and how wrong he'd always be. I needed to instruct him, question him, and remind him of his shortcomings. After all, I was his helpmate. The reality is, I wasn't helping him or our marriage. By pointing out each fault, I was poisoning the relationship. Oh, it was still a good marriage, and we deeply loved each other, but it was not what it could have been, and now it was too late. Days after his funeral, I stared at our dirty clothes basket that sat atop our dryer. Knowing his clothes were inside, I sighed so deeply. Before me was the last load of laundry I would ever wash for that sweet man— There would be no more dirty socks to pick up around the house. Ever. A week before, I would have rolled my eyes at that basket. But now, it held priceless treasures. I waited weeks to wash those clothes. My heart ached for dirty socks to once more be a part of my days. Those messes dotted around the house are reminders of God's gifts to us. Like Jesus— We have the opportunity to demonstrate love by serving those we live with. And the last time I checked, not a single person is perfect. How many times had my husband kept quiet, listened, and endured? He shared no list of ways that I needed refinement. He simply loved me. Those clothes were painfully cleaned and boxed away or donated. The tears, countless. And God, the lover of my soul in his infinite mercy, later gave me a special gift. He has allowed me to love again, to wear a second wedding dress, and to be a better wife. I married a wonderful man. I am still a butthole wife, but I am working on edifying the man who provides for my sons and me. I now strive to hug more and nag less. My goal is to make him feel respected, important, valued. I want to live, love. Recently I walked into the master bedroom and I stopped, nearly bursting into tears. I saw a pile of dirty clothes that my new husband had abandoned on the floor. As I stared at the pile, I smiled. I knew he had hurried to change out-of-work clothes into comfy clothes so he could spend more time with his new family. He had chosen what is more important. I happily scooped the treasures into my arms and carried them to the washing machine. I get to do this. I get to serve. I get to live with a wonderful man who ditches laundry for people. Let us not become weary in doing good. Galatians 6,
0: 9. And what a beautiful piece from Debbie Bazin. We started off sort of goofing off, but boy, that it turned all of us around. Something to think about. And we like to do that here on our American Stories. Turn the tables. And uh, we're all tearing up a little bit here, and hopefully you are too. And hopefully that moves you to be a better husband, a better wife, a better friend. A better everything this is lee habib this is our american stories This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our weekly series, Random Acts of Kindness. And if you have a great story of someone doing a random act of kindness for you, visit randomactsofkindness.org and post it there. And make sure to check out some of the terrific stories there. You'll be inspired, and it's a great character-building resource for families. And this week we bring you a story of a 7-year-old in Toledo, Ohio, named Adriana Reynolds that we read about at com. Adriana was bullied at school for being somewhat of a tomboy, which is just like my little girl, Reagan, 11 years old, and the things she loves to do are what only boys are supposed to love to do. And I love this country now because girls do whatever they want, and that's that, and they're going to have their way. Well, you won't believe this story, and we're lucky to have Adriana and her mother, Alexandria, on with us now. Adriana... Uh, Before we start and before we tell your story, you're seven years old. What's your idea of fun? You have a day off. It's the summer. How do you kill some time? Talk to us about what's fun in your life. Uh,
3: Riding my dirt bike and uh, holding my
0: turtle. That sounds like a day. My little girl loves riding her ATV and catching frogs. So you two have a lot in common. Tell us, Adriana, what was going on at school. Tell us what what was happening at school to you with the with the bullying. Uh,
4: they were uh, touching me,
5: hitting me, and calling names.
0: And what were they calling you names about, Adriana? What were what were they what what kind of names were they calling you? And why do you think they were doing that?
4: Uh, they were saying.
0: Uh, that that I was a uh, that I was a boy and ugly. And was this mostly boys? Do, was this mostly boys, uh, Adriana? Was this girls, or was this just everybody? It really, yeah, really, really. And you know, just so the audience knows, Adriana's hair was short because in April she had donated the bulk of it to wigs for kids an organization that provides wigs for children who need them. And most ordinarily that's for young kids who've suffered from cancer and have lost their hair. It's a beautiful thing to do and a, and a courageous thing to do. Alexandria, how did this affect your daughter and you too? And uh, talk about what happened next.
4: Um, well, she would come home from school crying and just very upset and... Um, you know, she didn't really understand why kids were doing what they were doing and saying what they were saying about her. And it was just really hard to watch your child be, you know, so upset over just mean stuff that kids say and putting their hands on her and stuff to that effect. Um, so I, it all originally started as I was trying to get people to send Audriana birthday cards in the mail for her birthday to show her that there was plenty of nice people in the world. And not everybody was mean. Um, and one of the ladies in one of my coloring groups online, um, she actually knows the Punisher's Motorcycle Club and she actually hooked us up with, um, Bush and, um, a pretty cool relationship just kind of started from there. Um, they made her a vest and, um, accepted her in as part of the club and um, they took her for a ride on the back of the motorcycle to school and all kinds of cool
0: stuff. And the Punishers, is, it's, it's sort of like a law enforcement motorcycle club in Toledo? Is, is that what, That's what I thought. And, and, and we have uh, Daniel on with us too, Daniel Bushy. And, and we're fortunate, Daniel, to have you here too. Tell us about that motorcycle club of yours and what you did for this family and this young lady. And I'm going to call her a young lady because that's what she is. And why you did it
3: we uh we basically we we help anybody we can um anytime our resources allow um we're very family oriented uh we do special events we just got done with a uh cancer run where we raise money for the Nightingale harvest ministries um so stuff like that, and all of our chapters do that you know we focus on our communities uh, the best we can and, you know there's there's always people that need help you know it's just you know getting to the ones we can. And, and so on, uh, friendship and family.
0: That's great. And, 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 and this is a, what, what, what are the age groups of the folks in this motorcycle club and what walks of life do they come from Daniel?
3: Um, every walk. My charter has, uh, active police, uh, active and retired military. Um, I've got EMTs, firefighters, uh, just anything you can think of, you know, it's, we bring people in and they have to hang out with us for a while, you know, to make sure they're going to be a good fit and make sure we're all on the same page.
0: That's great. That's great. And so what did you do uh, for this young lady in particular? What did you do for Adriana to help her with his bullying, help her with her self-esteem or her confidence, all of it?
3: When, uh, just like she said, they, Angie reached out to us and said, I know somebody in my coloring group that her daughter's being picked on and they want to know if you guys would send her a birthday card. And, uh, I got a hold of her mom and I said, uh, you know, what's going on? And she told us, she said, if you guys send a birthday card it'd be great. I just wanted to know there's still nice people out there. And I I said, We can we can do better than a birthday card. So, uh about eight or ten of us got together, rode out to Peanuts Grandma's house and uh we hung out with her for about forty five minutes or an hour and you know, I talked to her. I had been bullied when I was when I was younger. I used to be really small and uh, you know, I got bullied a lot when I was a kid too. Um, somebody set my hair on fire, um, I had a blade pulled on me, put to my neck, um, you know, I just off the top of my head. So I understood and I understand what she was going through at the time. Um, and I told her, you know, it's it's not her fault. It's, you know, when people do that, it's usually because they have self-esteem issues. They feel bad about themselves or they're having an issue at home. And it's not to be mean against anybody. It's just the way it is. You know, and I told her this them picking on her has nothing to do with her, that she's a good person.
0: And that's beautiful. And so you took her on a, you took her on a ride I, to school is what you did.
3: Yeah, we, uh, we came out to her house, picked her up. Uh, me and my VP blocked some traffic on the way over to make sure we could get there in one piece and uh, brought her out to the school. Just yeah. seen the kids as they were showing up to school, they're all wide-eyed and looking over at us. And like eight bikers standing outside of the school. It was fun, though. She had a blast.
0: Well, and you're helping out a young lady with a common love for bikes. Uh, Adriana, yeah. can you tell us about your first real ride on a real motorcycle and what it meant to you?
3: Uh It was fun and I really liked it.
0: Well, hopefully and you'll
3: love it really a lot. <laughs>
0: that's great and hopefully you have a lot have a lot more it sounds like you have some new friends alexandra after you guys have after you guys have expanded your family to include the punishers have you noticed any changes in your little girl
4: oh definitely she has a smile on her face all the time whenever she talks about them she just lights up and she loves telling everybody that she's part of the Punisher's motorcycle club and that she has a whole new family of uncles and it just brought her a lot more confidence and happiness back into her. And it's so wonderful to see.
0: That's beautiful. And Daniel, you got about 30 seconds, a final thought from you before we close.
3: Um, just anybody that's listening, you know, bullying is not okay. It affects kids badly. You know, it, it brings them down inside and it's a lifetime effect. There's no reason for it. Um, You know, just accept each other how you are. You know, everybody's different. That's what makes the world great.
0: Well, Daniel, Adriana, Alexandria, thank you all three of you, but particularly you, Daniel. Uh, Thank you for reaching out. These random acts of kindness, these things we do for one another, and I call them little acts of love because that's what they are, and we all need them. Uh, Just thanks for what you did. And Adriana, you keep riding, okay, sweetheart? You keep riding. This is Lee Habib. Thank you all for joining us. And this is Our American Stories, our random acts of kindness. What a great story. What a great country. And it's so true. Bullying, it's it's a part of life, but it can be fought back. And this is the best way to fight back with really, really random and radical acts of kindness. More after these messages with Our American Stories. American stories and every once in a while we like to bring you back to an old speech and there are so many great ones and today on this day in history in 2011 the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia delivered this opening statement to the Senate Judiciary Committee on a subject he cared about American exceptionalism and by the way Go to ouramericannetwork.org and listen to the two hours we did on Scalia. One about his life, a celebration of his life soon after his death. And then another which covered his funeral. And we do this on Our American Stories because, well, no one else does. And when he died, the only thing people talked about was who's going to follow Justice Scalia. What we were interested in was who was Justice Scalia? And so he starts off this speech by identifying a hole in our education system.
6: I speak uh, to students especially, law students, but also college students and even high school students, quite frequently about the Constitution, uh, because I feel that we're, we're, we're not teaching it very well. Um, I, sp- I speak to law students from the, the best law schools, people... Presumably especially interested in the law and I ask them, how many of you have read the Federalist Papers? And well a lot of hands will go no not just number 48 and the big ones How many of you have read the Federalist Papers cover to cover? Never more than about 5% and that that is very sad. I mean if Especially if you're interested in the Constitution here's a document that says what the framers of it thought they were doing it, it's such a, a, a profound exposition of political science that it, it is studied in, in political science courses in Europe. And yet we, we have raised a generation of Americans who are not familiar with it.
0: And it's so true.
6: Here, Scalia
0: continues by asking an obvious question with a not necessarily obvious answer.
6: So when, when I speak to these groups, I, I ask them, What do you think is the reason that America is such a free country? What is it in in our Constitution that, that, that makes us what we are? And I guarantee you that the response I will get, and you will get this from almost any American, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, no unreasonable searches and seizures, no quartering of troops in hope, those marvelous provisions of the Bill of Rights, but then I tell them, if if you think that a Bill of Rights is what sets us apart, you're crazy. Every banana republic in the world has a Bill of Rights. Every president for life has a Bill of Rights. <laughs> the Bill of Rights of the, of the former evil empire, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, was much better than ours. I mean it literally. It was much better. We guarantee freedom of speech and of the press. Big deal. They guaranteed freedom of speech, of the press, of street demonstrations and protests. And anyone who is who is caught trying to suppress criticism of the government will be called to account. Whoa, that, that is wonderful stuff. Of course, just words on paper. What What our framers would have called a parchment guarantee. And the reason is that the real constitution of the Soviet Union you think of the word constitution, it doesn't mean a bill, it means structure. Say a person has a sound constitution, has a sound structure. The real constitution of the Soviet Union, which is what our framers debated that, that, that whole summer in Philadelphia in 1787. They didn't talk about the Bill of Rights. That was an afterthought, wasn't it? That constitution of the Soviet Union did not prevent the centralization of power in one person or in one party. And when that happens, the game is over. The Bill of Rights is just what our framers would call a parchment guarantee.
0: And by the way, if you get a chance to visit Philadelphia, it's so worth it. I took my family last year, the National Constitution Center, as fine a place to go and learn about the Constitution, perfectly adequate for kids and adults alike, go to Assembly Hall, see the Liberty Bell. It's amazing what happened there. And you see George Washington's chair sitting up there in the center atop everything with a little sun at the top. Just a great trip. So if lists of rights can be empty promises, what, Justice Scalia, does matter?
6: The real key to uh, the distinctiveness of America Mm -hmm. is the structure of our government. One part of it, of course, is the independence of the judiciary. But there's, there's, there's a lot more. There are very few countries in the world, for example, that that have a bicameral legislature. Oh, England has a House of Lords for the time being, but the House of Lords has no substantial power. They can just make the Commons pass a bill a second time. France has a Senate. It's honorific. Italy has a Senate. It's honorific. Very few countries have two separate bodies in the legislature, equally powerful. That's a lot of trouble, as you gentlemen doubtless know, to get the same language through two different bodies elected in a different fashion. Very few countries in the world have a a separately elected uh, chief executive. Sometimes I go to Europe to talk about separation of powers. and, And when I get there, I find that all I'm talking about is independence of the judiciary. Because the Europeans... Don't even try to divide the the two political powers, the two political branches, the legislature and the chief executive. In all of the parliamentary countries, the chief executive is the creature of the legislature. There's never any disagreement between them and the the, the prime minister, as there is sometimes between you and the president. When when there's a disagreement, they just kick them out. They have a no-confidence vote, a new election, and they get a prime minister who agrees with the legislature. And, uh, you know, the, the Europeans look at the system and they say, well, it passes one house. It doesn't pass the other house. Sometimes the other house is in the control of a different party. It passes both. And then this president who has a veto power vetoes it. And they look at this and they say, uh, it, is, it is gridlock.
0: Gridlock. You hear that word a lot, as if it's a pejorative. Plenty of other folks think
6: it's a pejorative, too. But take a listen to Scalia's position. They talk about a dysfunctional government be, be, because there's disagreement. And, 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 they, and the framers would have said, yes, that's exactly the way we set it up. We, we wanted this to be power, uh, contradicting power, because the main, uh, the main ill that beset us, as, as Hamilton said in, in The Federalist, when he talked about a separate Senate. He said, yes, it seems inconvenient, but inasmuch as as the main ill that besets us is an excess of legislation, it won't be so bad. This is 1787. He didn't know what an excess of legislation was. <laughs> so uh, uh, unless Americans can appreciate that and learn, learn to love the separation of powers, which means learning to love the gridlock, which the framers believed would be the main protection of minorities, the main protection: if if a bill is about to pass that really comes down hard on some minority, they think it's terribly unfair. It doesn't take much to throw a monkey wrench into, into this into this complex system. So Americans should uh, should appreciate that, and, and they should learn to love the gridlock. Uh, it's it's there for a reason, so that the legislation that gets out will will be good legislation.
0: It's so true. And this is what Scalia was at and what much of his mindset was about. And it was about the dispersal of power. And that is pushing the power back closest to the people. And that's why you had these three Article 1, 2, and 3 are so important in the Constitution. And again, most citizens know nothing about this. And as I went to a very good law school, I went to the University of Virginia Law School. We barely learned this stuff. It was opinions about this, opinions about that. But the core argument, which is why was there a constitution, what purpose does it serve, and it was to not aggregate too much power in any one place, because that's not good. We love hearing these old speeches, and on this day in history, we hear Justice Scalia, and as always, our this days in history are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all of the things in life that matter. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, or you're just a little too old to go to college, Hillsdale will come to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and catch all of their great coursework. our American stories, and from time to time, our own Jesse Edwards finds something for us that is so compelling, so good, so spiritually good, that we must take the time to sit back, close our eyes, and follow him on a journey of self-discovery and enlightenment. Join us now as we travel to the farthest corner of the earth on an epic expedition of contemporary art.
1: Egypt, home of the Great Pyramid. Believed to be built around 2500 BC, it was the tallest man-made structure in the world for more than 3800 years. What is it about this shape, this basic yet elegant, powerful structure that has inspired awe in the hearts and minds of humankind for so many thousands of years? Time after time, we see this structure assembled in all corners of the earth, from the Mayan and Aztec pyramids in Central and South America to the Yasin Pyramid structures in China. Even in North America, from the Luxor in Las Vegas to the Bass Pro Shop in Memphis, Tennessee, this enigma continues to baffle scholars and the common man alike. Even on this very day, A dedicated team of dreamers is planning to erect the next symbol of ancient knowledge and mysticism known as a pyramid. This time, it won't be created using stone or glass. This time, the timeless structure of the pyramid will be crafted using a massive collection of VHS tapes from the 1996 romantic comedy Jerry Maguire. Starring America's favorite midget Scientologist, Tom Cruise. Who's coming with me? <coughs> Cuba Gooding Jr. A real man would not chop the from a single mother. And Renee Zellweger.
3: You had me at hello.
1: <laughs> Hi, this is Jesse Edwards for Our American Stories, and what you just heard is it's completely true. Uh, there are some people who are seriously planning on building a giant pyramid made out of thousands of old VHS tapes of Jerry Maguire. I first heard about it uh, a few years back and then it just kind of disappeared and I forgot about it until I recently came across headlines of a pop-up video store in Los Angeles that had nothing but thousands of Jerry Maguire VHS tapes on the walls, along with Jerry Maguire posters, Jerry Maguire playing on the TV screens, and uh, they even had uniformed employees running the store. It is a video store made entirely of Jerry Maguire videotapes.
2: We get so many different types of people coming in. I've had kids come in who have never been in a video store before, and this probably will be the last video store they're in.
1: I think this this video store can really really make it in this town it's a very timely the idea of having just one movie to watch i think that's really something we're looking forward to in the future (laughs) okay right about now is when you hear that record skipping sound effect and i ask what's going on here (laughs) what's going on here so i had to get to the bottom of this I, i did a little digging around on the internet and it turns out the guy behind this project is known as commodore gilgamesh so uh, after some digging, I found his email address and gave him a call. He agreed to talk to us. Before we get to the Jerry Maguire pyramid, I had to find out who this guy is. My first question, so is Commodore Gilgamesh your real name?
7: It depends on the situation, to be honest with you. I like to, uh, to change it as often as possible, so I uh, can't be googled efficiently.
1: His real name <laughs> is Nick Mayer. He and a few of his friends run a website called everythingisterrible.com.
7: Everything is Terrible is a video and performance collective um, based in Los Angeles and a lot of other cities all around the country where we primarily take old video clips and re edit them into like new psychedelic and comedy pieces that we put on the internet. So I've been doing that for almost 10 years um, and you know, I have a history in like video and performance and stuff. So that's kind of my, my main background.
1: So how'd you get started collecting old VHS tapes in the first place?
7: I've always been interested in this. I was—I um, got two VCRs for Christmas when I was like 11, I think, and started copying tapes. Um, I think that was probably the beginning. I made my, my basement of my parents' house into like a video store-looking thing. I collected a bunch of posters and covered them in, in movie posters and had cardboard stand-ups everywhere and had made copies of all the movies, so... Um, I've been kind of on the same trajectory for a very long time. So, um, yeah, just always been interested in uh, in media. And all of us in the group are are hoarders of media and also creators. So we wanted to kind of combine our love of hoarding with our love of creating. So we kind of found the per- perfect little niche for that.
1: So how many copies of Jerry Maguire do you actually own?
7: I would say we have over 14,000 at this point. Um, since the Jerry, M- Jerry Maguire store has been open, they've been flooding in. <laughs> So, um yeah, over fourteen thousand copies we we hope to we hope to double it by the time we get to their final resting place, the Jerry Maguire pyramid
1: uh, so I imagine it's probably quite a logistical nightmare to collect and s- store all of that. How do you do it?
7: It has made our lives very difficult over the years, um so we've been doing this for eight years, and um, we tour and we get all these tapes given to us, and we have to strap them on top of our vans and cars and go to post offices and mail them to ourselves and we've spent <laughs> thousands of dollars uh, on this project and uh, an enormous amount of time. Uh, Usually, they they used to live in our homes, just like stacked everywhere. Um, But in the last few years, we've had a studio where we've been able to store them, uh, and they take up a lot of space there. I think we have six pallets filled with with Jerry Maguire's.
1: So people mail these things to you constantly. How how many do you think you get uh, every week?
7: Sometimes we don't talk about this for a year or so because we forget that we're doing it. Um, so it'll slow down to a trickle of, you know, at lowest, 30 to 50 tapes a week or so, and then at the highest, you know, 200 or so a week. So they're always
1: coming in. So the, the obvious question, why Jerry Maguire? Uh, why did you come up with the idea to start hoarding VHS tapes at the movie, and where do they even come from?
7: So, the Jerry the, Maguire, the was, it was really just, uh, uh, it is just the most natural Way for us to get the most of a single piece of media. I think there there are many many Jerry Maguire VHS tapes out there. They have been forsaken, and we have decided that we need to rescue all of them. So uh, purely out of the numbers is is how we got here. We just saw them over and over again at thrift stores while we were looking for the other um, the other footage that we use for for the videos on our website, and we. Originally, just started taking photos of them and then started buying them and eventually put a call out on our website and in our live performances that we wanted all of them and we needed help. So that's really when it took off. Just all of our fans would not stop buying them and bringing them to us. And that's where they've all come from.
1: Now, tell us about the pyramid that you're building with these 14,000-plus copies of Jerry Maguire and VHS.
7: In our efforts to save and preserve these artifacts of our culture, Um, we are working with a team of of engineers and architects to construct a tomb that will be in the desert, far away from our cities and and towns and whatnot, so so as to protect them, uh, where all of the Jerry Maguire VHS tapes can live safely um, long after we're all gone from here. So um, that's what we're doing right now, and that's why we're asking everyone to, to mail us uh, copies of jerry Maguire, or bring them to our shows and also to help out financially to help build this thing because it's literally the most important thing that any of us can be doing right now
1: <laughs> is it going to be like an attraction people can actually go and see with the family it's or? going
7: to be an attraction um but one that it takes Uh, a little bit of work to get to. We're not going to hide it from anybody. We're going to make it very clear where it is, but you're going to have to get there. It's going to be a little bit of a pilgrimage. It's important for people to be in the presence of this many Jerry Maguires, and it's important for them to, uh, you know, experience the the journey to get there also.
1: So you set up a mock video store in L.A., uh, fully these tapes for sort of what, a a performing arts installation? Tell us about it.
7: When we were collecting Jerry's, as we, we lovingly call them, um we've just joked about all the many things that we could do with them. And the thing that just kept coming up was opening a video store that carries only Jerry Maguire's. Uh, so, and, and it, slowly became the beginning of the end for us. So this is like the announcement of the pyramid We're raising awareness. We're getting people in the room to, to feel the power of the Jerry's and uh, hopefully it's going to catapult this whole project uh, in, into the, into
1: the air here. How many people does it take to pull something like this off? Everything
7: is Terrible is a pretty loose collective of five core members that have been around since the beginning and then probably like 15 others who've who've come along and help out with specific things. Uh, but the the Jerry McGuire video store, we have probably 40 volunteers working on it.
1: How do people react to the video store? I mean, just walking down the street, you see this thing. What happens next?
7: Half of the people who come into the store know about everything is terrible and know about the project and they're just so pumped <laughs> and then the other half you watch them walk by and they're just like mouths agape they stop they kind of walk by then they come back and then it's great by the end everyone is laughing and smiling because it's kind of inescapable how silly it is to see all of them together
1: and that's nick Mare, aka commodore gilgamesh He's a guy with a collection of over 14,000 copies of Jerry Maguire on VHS who's planning on building a massive pyramid with them, out in the middle of the desert. Because why not? To find out more about the project or to donate any copies of Jerry Maguire on VHS you might have lying around in your own collection, go to jerrymaguirepyramid.com where you can also find a link to donate to their GoFundMe page for our American stories. Jesse Edwards
0: <laughs> Thank you for that Jesse And I'm I'm feeling the power of the Jerry's Myself, there's always the whole team here This is Our American Stories Hey, we love talking about the American Dream, this is one of them The Jerry Maguire Pyramid, more after These messages once again, this is Our American Stories and that's Jesse Edwards We want more of these Jesse A lot more of them Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and for the hour we're going to be talking to songwriter and singer John Paul White a real talent and you're listening to the song Poison and Wine which propelled the Civil Wars he was a lead singer it was a duo actually and this song propelled them to the top of the charts and to Grammy territory let's take a listen Joined by John Paul White, and we're joined because his new album, Beulah, is in record stores everywhere. We always start off all of our interviews real simply, uh, and that is where were you born, and who are your parents, and how did both of those things impact who you are and what you're doing today?
8: I was born uh, in Tuscumbia, Alabama, at uh, Helen Keller Hospital. I was not Helen Keller Hospital at the time; it was Colbert County Hospital, but that it, it changed names later. And, and yes, that Helen Keller. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, Ivy Green is just down the street where she learned how to say how to sign water. You can still go there today. Uh, I was born to Mac and Mary White, and they actually grew up on the Tennessee state line on the on the Tennessee side. So. We were living down there when I was born and before I started school, they moved up to the Tennessee state line back to where their roots were, which was about 20 miles north of the shoals. And, I you know, lived there until after high school and moved back to the shoals at that point. But my dad was a, uh, a farmer, a chicken farmer and my mom was a, uh, a laborer on that farm. You yeah, know, she, she probably, you know, Worked as hard as any woman I, I ever met. And, uh, so my formative years were all out there on 30 acres taking care of poultry and, and living out in the middle of nowhere, um, in rural Tennessee. And it was a, it was a pretty blissful existence. You know, we, um, my dad had worked for Ford Motor Company in the shoals. And then it shut down and put a whole lot of people out of work. And so we subsisted solely on that farm for quite a while until he found work again. And um you couldn't have told us any any different that, that life was any different for anybody else because we were miles from the next family, went to a little small church run um private school. Um and everybody else was in the exact same boat as we were, so it was there was never any sort of class or social status. You know, we were all just all struggling equally, and um, uh, it was a it was a really good really good childhood, to be honest.
0: Yep, and uh, it's something I experienced. I grew up, uh, John, in the New York area, but on my first uh, tour with my dad, my dad and I would drive around the country. Uh, together alone and and spend some time visiting civil war sites and battlefields but that wasn't what we were really doing we were going out and seeing our country and uh yeah. something struck me about the way people in the south and particularly the rural south lived and it had nothing to do john with the picture i had in my head from the movies i saw and the imagery i saw particularly how white and black people lived together uh particularly how how just kind and and warm uh, southern people were and i think so much of the simple nature of their lives and i don't mean that they they were simple people but that the lives yeah. were sort of stripped down and life became actually quite pleasant for for so many people uh, talk about talk about that and you've been around the block so you're a guy who grew up like that yeah. but has also been around big cities could live anywhere you want to live in the world and where do you live now
8: i i live right there in florence alabama right there where i was born And I have no intentions of going anywhere else. I mean, I'm able to, you know, take care of my wanderlust by doing the touring thing. I get to visit lots of great cities and eat lots of great food and meet lots of great people. But, you know, every single experience cements my belief that, you know, the Shoals, the Tennessee Valley is where I was always meant to be and where I meant to stay. And, you know, I've got small kids and and a beautiful wife and I'm gone a lot. And so it makes a lot more sense for, for them to have a, a support network close by, a lot of family close by, low crime rate and, you know, cost of living is low. And, yep. and just, uh, it's, it's a really good existence, but you know, you, you made a, you made a good point about how, you know, things really were just boiled down to their very simplest. Uh, structure growing up in the South when I did, uh, you know, pre-cable, pre-internet, pre-cell phones, pre-all that stuff, and um, you know, I- I'll be one of those old fuddy-duddies that uh, you know miss the old days. I-, I wish my kids could grow up in that existence, and and you know, we we try to keep that sort of mentality going in our house. We try to to not be too connected and to, and be aware of the world within your reach, uh, and not, I I think, you know, I think both worlds can, can coexist if you, you know, if you do it judiciously, but um, it's, uh, I, I miss, I miss those days of, of having so much less distractions and having more laser focus on what was going on right in front of you.
0: And when we come back, more from John Paul White, his new record Beulah. Go to Amazon and get it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.
5: Ice, water Drink it down Till it's gone I Drink it down till it's gone Oh well, there's always second time around
0: Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to John Paul White's What So?, a terrific new song on his new album, Beulah. John Paul's recording his first solo record in many years, and it's great. Oh
5: in the road, sun on your back, shoulder the load your ancestors pack. where on your sleeve the virtue.
0: And now we're rejoined by John Paul White, and we love talking about locations. You draw a line around Memphis and go out three hundred miles, John, and and it's almost all of American music. It's crazy. Yeah. What is it about the soil? That's definitely sure. What is it about the soil? Um, what do you think? Have you thought about it? Have yeah. you pondered it? I, I
8: have a bit. You know, I, I'm I'm asked that question. Obviously, being from one of those. Uh, Centers, uh, I am definitely asked that question what's in the water what's the deal why why, why is there so many people and even to this day you know with uh, you know Gary Nichols with steel drivers and Jason Isbell and Alabama shakes and Anderson East and you know Dylan LeBlanc there's so many so many artists doing it and doing it well um, I think you know some of us nowadays are standing on the shoulders of the guys that came before us mm-hmm. and we'd be perfectly fine with saying that but obviously how did they make it happen how did that come about i think you know spooner oldham and i have talked about this spooner is a legendary session player from yep. back in the day and till today he still plays on sessions for us at single lock records my our little label back home and he he you know he he demystifies it. He doesn't think that there's anything in the water. He kind of shrugs when people say that. And I guess I do too. Um, I'd love to be a romantic about it and say there's something spiritual there and that it's in the water and that feels good. And who, you know, who could say, but I, I will say that, you know, my take has always been that, and this is obviously not exclusive to the South or to the Shoals, but for whatever reason, there was this perfect alignment of poverty, you know, a little bit of ignorance and not not in a, you know, non-intelligent kind of way, but you know, people like Rick Hall that came along and had had nothing but had all the drive in the world and could not be told you can't start a studio in the middle of nowhere. You can't cut hits in the middle of nowhere. You can't have a record label in the middle of nowhere. And he had just enough cojones to tell people, you know, just watch me. Just watch me do this. Yep. <laughs> and he was smart enough to sense great talent around him when he saw it and exploit the heck out of it. And he'd be the first to tell you. And the thing that really put us on the map um, was when people like Jerry Wexler at Atlantic uh, up in New York yep. took, a, took a notion. When he saw, and, uh, you know, Rick deserves the credit for cutting, you know, you know, you better move on and and, and things like that. Jimmy Hughes and Steelaway and stuff like that. Yep. But he got Jerry's ear, and then Jerry started sending Wilson and Arisa and Clarence Carter and all this stuff started coming down. You know, there should be a huge statue to, to Wexler in my town. And, you know, one of these days there will be because he's still revered all those guys but you take that you take some of the stack stuff coming over you take some of the motown stuff coming down you know and then it just exploded but it was a bunch of a bunch of funky white dudes that didn't know any better that they couldn't do it yep they just said well why can't we let's just let's just tackle it and See what happens.
0: Yeah, the kind I, of ignorance that almost borders on innocence, in, in a sense. Yeah. I, I didn't yeah, know. Innocence I not is probably not know a
8: better word, but but that's definitely the truth. But all of those guys came from the same walk of life, and none of them had any money. None of them had any prospect for any money. None of them had any training. Any, yep. you know, they were not skilled musicians. They just played what they felt. They played what they saw at the local club. They played what they heard on old, you know, on the Otis Redding records or or even earlier records than that, and just made it up as they went.
0: Yeah, and you know Jerry Wexler. I think what's most interesting about him, and here's a here's a Jewish record producer from the biggest, the most powerful music city in the country. I would guess at the time, uh, L. A. had not yet uh, sort of metastasized as another center of uh, of music, and Nashville still wasn't quite. It, it had one idiom; it had country, but here's sure. New York City. And Jerry Wexler did not suffer from what lots of people suffered from at the time, which I believe was re- regional bigotry. That is, that a lot of yeah. Americans have a vision of the South that nothing good could come from there, and that this man had the vision to say, wow, these swampers, listen to this. What is this? I'm curious. And he had that curiosity and innocence himself, I think, John.
8: He, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And his mentality, his personality, and the way that he looked at music and the world around him matched up perfectly with the guys in the shows because people like Rick and David Hood and Jimmy Johnson you know, that it can't be overstated, you know, the the racial equality that is depicted in that in that film. Yep. Because it wasn't because I won't even pretend that it was because these guys were better people right. than anyone else in the South or anyone else in the world. They were very practical, you know, guys and they were like, Who's the best drummer? Yep. I don't care what the color of the skin is, who's the best drummer and is going to help me cut a hit? Well, then you're the drummer. Who's the best singer? Well, then you're the singer. There was absolutely no qualms at all about um, ethnicity. And mm-hmm. and Jerry, I think Jerry looked at the world the same way. It was like, where's the next hit? Yeah. Where's the next big thing? What's what's going to move me? And he wasn't afraid to go to it. He didn't have to have it come to him. And uh, it, was a, it was a perfect marriage, man. Yeah. I, I, as I said, he, he is... He, he probably was the catalyst
0: let's talk about you and your and your music uh, i think folks know you from uh... the civil wars and a grammy sure. award-winning uh, uh... a group uh, a, a duet a writing powerhouse that you know I, I you know when i first heard poison and wine my wife had sent it to me and she was crying when she heard it john and i and sure. I, I give you and pay you the highest tribute because i think if you can make someone cry um... it's uh... it's and i think sure. we all need to cry regularly um it's a beautiful thing and uh well talk about talk about what that was like ada to be in a in a group like that and then ultimately you're now making your first solo record in eight years um talk about mm -hmm. the civil wars that success and then that journey to to being that solo artist you are now
8: sure well i won't even pretend that i had any clue whatsoever that uh, the Civil Wars would be as successful as it was. And to be honest, you know, you, you mentioned it's been eight years since I made a solo record. Once I made that solo record, it was for Capitol Records, and about the time I was mixing that record, the label uh, imploded. They merged Capitol with Virgin, and uh, the head of Virgin became the head of uh, all of it, so all the Virgin acts Um they survived and all the capital acts that didn't have their record already out um, we got cut so I was in a really bitter place at that time and so when when the civil wars happened I had a completely different mentality than I had any of the years prior whereas I was just making music to please myself uh, I'd done it the other way around I had tried to play the game and and just came out of it really bitter, and decided I'm I'm only going to make music that makes me happy because at the end of the day it is a crapshoot whether anybody else is going to connect with this. Yep. You know, I, I can't I can't control that at all. All I know is whether I like it, and if I stick to that criteria, I've got to hope that there's a lot of other people out there in the world that like the same things that I do, yep. and that's. I fearlessly, selfishly started making music that way once I met Joy and, and we started the Civil Wars. And so um, I won't even pretend that I saw that connection happen so fast with fans, with, uh, with the public at large. And it kept stair-stepping so quickly and um, escalating so fast. And it was it was a whirlwind it was and it's kind of hard to remember a lot of it because it was uh, i had blinders on just okay tell me where i need to be at this moment and i will give you all i've got at this moment and then tell me where i need to be right after that and and it was um at times it was a uh, it was a uh, there was bliss to it you know that i could just focus on making music but I, it was also very you know overwhelming and you know there's lots of things that were just sliding right past that uh, I just had to trust other people to deal with and and so I wasn't super hands on after a certain amount of time because it was just literally impossible we were uh, basically the record label uh, the entire time so all the responsibility was in our laps so I just worked as as much and as often as humanly possible
0: and this is Lee Habib. We're talking to John Paul White and his new album, Beulah. It's available everywhere. Go to Amazon. Buy it. Uh, and when we come back, we're going to dig into the record, more about John Paul White's life. This is Our American Stories.
5: Heaven
0: Habib and this is our American stories and for the hour we're talking to John Paul White singer songwriter and at one point uh, the Grammy Award winner with the Civil Wars and it's a tough journey to go from that and going back to that solo career but it's something that John Paul White was dedicated and determined to do uh, it was an artistic choice that he decided to make. John let's carry on with that idea. Of moving from this very successful duo, but you wanting to just well do something else
8: I learned a lot during that process where you know again getting back to what we were talking about about what really is important and what what is not, and what is what is something that I'm willing to fight for and, and strive for, and what you know really isn't a priority for me anymore and so I've gotten to do a lot of things that I wanted to do, a lot of bucket list items. And I'm at a place now that my one and only priority is, you know, being happy and being happy is making music that I really dearly love. Going and playing it for people, which I did not realize would be something that made me happy again, because I was so burnt out from so much touring, Yep, but I'm, thoroughly enjoying myself playing these songs for people and Making sure I don't go too much make sure I don't leave too often making sure that my first and you know that my main priority is uh, My family and my well-being and my health and
0: and my future and I sense this in 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 the new record Beulah and I want to talk about that word John because it means a lot of things to a lot of people and I looked it up, yes. and and my goodness, and I love a word like that. And I think your writing is very much like that. One of the things I promise I will not ask you during this interview is, what does a song mean? It's the worst thing to ask a writer, and I, I, would never, <laughs> I wouldn't do that to you. It's whatever we, we think it should mean. And I, my Amen. sister's a writer, and what do you think it means, I think is the only answer that matters. Uh, what does the yeah. audience think it means? But you you pick uh, these subjects to write about that have this sort of, they're not on the nose. And they, they give space for people to lean into the song, and yet there is a structure there. But the word Beulah, why that word?
8: Beulah is uh, it, it has many different levels of meaning for me. Um, the first, uh, the primary reason that word is even a part of my lexicon is because of my family. My dad used to call my little sister that as a term of endearment. Um, I call my daughter that. I call my wife that. It's it's a word that's always been around in that kind of context, and it's also you know my 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 mom's Catholic, but my dad was uh, you know Southern Baptist, and you know the the gospel songbook was a big part of their lives, and and songs about Beulah Land were common. Yep, uh, because it's a you know it's a, it's a biblical. Term, although I think it's only mentioned once in the Bible, but it's a it's definitely a common common word in the South uh, in gospel songs. Um, but for me, the larger uh, meaning of it comes from a guy named William Blake, and um, I don't pretend to be the most uh, most well read, intelligent guy, but uh, and and especially in the world of philosophy. But he's a guy that I dig you know, a lot of what he's written and I read, you know, Milton back in high school and it yep. kinda of stuck with me. But he um he has his own little mythology for uh the way the world works and and his phrase he used the term beulah for a place that you could go to either through meditation or, you know, whatever. You could go there and you could center, you could heal, get it together you know, and, and and escape from the world until you um straighten out all the things that need to be straightened out. And you couldn't stay there. You know, it was a it was a temporary um um uh, harbour. Yep. But when you came back to the world you came back a little bit more whole, a little bit more prioritized and, and uh you know I felt like there's there's no better no better word that sums up this record
0: it's oh, wonderful let's talk about uh, a, a couple of the songs let's talk about what's so um, because I just I watched it up on Rolling Stone's website and and listen to it and sometimes I get distracted when I watch a video because it has nothing to do with the song or it gets in the way of the song I love the way you did hey, the man. video I love the way you shot it it was just simple it served the song it didn't get in the hey. way of the song and let's take a listen
5: the road, Sun on your Pack. Wear on your the virtues you like. but don't get above your
0: raising. talk about uh some of the things you're getting at in that song because I've always been around now in my life folks who are really aware of their station in life and <laughs> and talk about that and talk about uh, folks who uh, are in these spaces love these spaces because I think you're writing about, in some respects, some of those things. And it's also it feels like just a look back. Um, talk about the song.
8: You know, we've we've kind of touched on some of those thoughts earlier with you know being from being from the uh, Loretta Tennessee community, which is mostly farmers. Carpenters, you know, tradesmen, you know, a lot of blue collar, if if even that, and you know, we we all had a common bond in that we all really didn't have a lot, and the only people that really got ostracized, that got pushed around, were the kids that had it all, the kids that came in with the new toys and the new clothes and. And the new TV, and they had a TV in their room, or anything like that. If they, if they, anybody ever brought that stuff up, they got bullied. They got you know completely ignored because it was you know it was the opposite way that it probably is more so nowadays. And so materialism, we would have loved to have had all that stuff. I mean, it's not because we were better kids, but it was just like that was not an option. So you know, raising, elevating your stature. Um, relative to the people around you, um, that was always frowned upon. And I remember that um, heavily. Uh, My dad saying, you know, don't put on airs. Don't get above your raising. Don't, you know, who's this guy think he is? You know, I know him. He he picked cotton right alongside me his whole childhood. Why does he think he's better than us? You know, just because he went to college. You know, I, I heard all those conversations and i i took it to heart yep. whether it's the way it should be or it shouldn't be it's a big part of my childhood and it's a big part of growing up as a as a male in the south is that we're all working the same row and uh some of us are a little more successful than others but that doesn't make you any different human being
0: Yeah, i always tell and people so, i always tell people so what you're a little more successful yeah. so what now what
8: yeah i i i battle with it a lot, you know, with, with varying successes that I've had in life. It's always been with an all shucks kind of mentality, you know, even to the point of, you know, frustrating people like, why don't you just accept the, you know, the good things that have happened for you and, and be proud of those. And, and I do in my own way, but there's always just a little tinge of of, uh, I don't know, a little bit of that Catholic guilt see- seeps in there, or something like, why are these things happening for me? Because I know people more talented. I know people that work harder. I know people that are more deserving. Right. And so I always, everything is with a grain of salt. And I think I needed to write that song to express that, not to, not only to articulate it for myself, but to people around me and people from my hometown that, you know, I'm still that same guy. Yeah.
0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. John Paul White for the hour, his new record, Bueller. Pick it up at Amazon.com.
5: And what's new?
0: Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We've been talking to John Paul White for the hour, and we love talking to artists and talking about artists. John Paul White, Make You Cry. Uh, Talk about that song. Well,
8: as you said earlier, I'm not very good with uh, meanings of songs because sometimes I know what they're about, sometimes I don't, but most often um, my old mentor, his name was Walt Aldridge, and uh, he's written some Two or three songs of the year in the country world back in the day and, and a brilliant songwriter and I remember writing songs for him and he would tell me, he said, Don't don't put a don't put a ring in the in the song. And what he meant was he explained that you put a wedding ring on anybody's finger in the song, you have just completely left a lot of the population out of the song they can't live inside it they can't live vicariously through it and yep. become a character because they're not married and right. so they don't have that point of view and it, i really took that to heart so i've always tried to make sure that songs had a little gray a little vague uh quality to it so that anybody can step inside it so that's you know a, a lot of what i do that happens and so it. What I think it 's about is not anything like what other people think it 's about, and a lot of times what they think it's about is much better right and I just like to take credit for that but um with that song it's you know it's one of those one of those things that one of those universal things that we all want to be missed, we all want to be cared about whether whatever the situation is that um has two people be a part you know whether you wanted it whether they wanted it whatever you still want there to be a little pang there you still want there to be a little twist of the knife no matter what Yep. and so I feel like I'm always trying to touch on universal truths things that that affect everyone and, and I still feel like those things are still out there that have, haven't been written about and I really wanted to dig into that Self-loathing, that that self-reverence of you know, yeah. I don't. I I still need to be needed.
0: Yep. And it's a universal cry ultimately. And uh, and, and
8: I, I would I would think so.
0: Yeah. And 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 I want to talk about one other song. It, it's not on the record, but it, it's my wife's favorite song from a from a uh, series uh, called Nashville, which. Um, has terrific writing in it, and Buddy Miller's sitting there, and you know you've got uh, T-Bone Burnett being the musical director. And when I saw those names, I said, whether I like the plot, whether I like the acting, I got to watch this series just so I can hear the songwriting. And no one will ever love you. And by the way, when you performed it, I did not know you had written that song, and I wish you'd record oh. it because my goodness, I love Connie Britton and I love the, the the team that sang it, but my goodness, John, you you kill that song.
6: Well
8: thank you very much, man. I appreciate that. Um uh, that one has that song has been around for a while. I wrote that with uh Steve McEwen who's a guy that uh from London. And uh I wrote that with no intention of anything Nashville related actually connecting with it and using it and, and actually getting it cut. We were just selfishly writing a song that made both happy. And I have to give credit to T-Bone Burnett for that because when uh, he asked me, he said, I'm, I'm working on this new show. Do you have anything that you're really proud of and happy with that hasn't been used that's exclusive? And I thought, well, here's a chance for me to show T-Bone a song that I'm really proud of and maybe it will spur further collaboration. So I honestly never imagined that he'd be able to use it in the... In a show about Nashville, Tennessee, but uh, you know, to his credit, he, he pulled it off, and I'm I'm really
0: proud of that. Great, and I'll leave you with this because we like to play it, and it's Martin Scorsese, and he's talking about movies. But my my sisters a writer, and I have so many friends who are musicians, and and I don't know why, but people would always say, "Why do you want to do that? That's not real life, and what, what how silly to want to be a writer and the like." And uh, so I wanted to have you listen to Martin Scorsese uh, talking to folks at the Kennedy Center about what movies were to him and to us, and in the end, what storytelling and art is to all of us. Let's Whenever take- I hear
8: people dismiss movies as fantasy and make, uh, make a hard distinction between film and
3: life, I think to myself that it's just a way of avoiding the power of cinema. I mean, of course it's not life. It's the invocation of life. It's an ongoing dialogue with life. Frank Capra um, said, uh,
8: film is a disease. <laughs> he went on, but I, that's enough
3: for now.
0: And, and so it sounds to me like, hey, you've caught the disease. I know songwriters. They're, in the end, because of the task at hand, I, I found them to be not dour, but just they're always in a place because they always have this struggle, and it's a, it's a good struggle. And and yet what I think Scorsese said about art being the invocation of life in an ongoing dialogue we rely on the writers, and uh, in the end, we Americans and people of the world, for you to help us with that dialogue, and that's a heck of a burden. Well, it
8: it, it is that um, I, I definitely uh, have realized that when I write things that whether they pertain to my life or to you know some sort of obvious you know parallel with my life. Or, if I go straight to you know using that word fantasy, if I just com- pull things completely uh, uh, diametrically opposed to the way that I've always lived, I have realized that if I do it in a way that that is honest and that is heartfelt and that uh, that i'm I am really being mindful of um, portraying all the characters in the in the most true light. I've noticed that the way it connects with other people is it's mind-boggling because, as I said, if I, if I keep the edges gray, the stories that people tell me about how this song meant this to me because this happened to me, and when you hear it from that context, you realize, wow, I, I couldn't have written that song if I knew their story. Right. It would have skewed what I did. So I feel like you know all of us have, have that, that power and that burden to be able to be a voice for other people that could never, you know, articulate what was going on in their lives because they either didn't have that skill set or they just couldn't couldn't put it in words. It was too close. It was too yep. it would be too maudlin if they were in the middle of it trying to write a song about it. So oh. I don't I don't clearly understand why I'm able to do that and any of us as songwriters are able to do that. But I try not to to you know i try not to overanalyze it and just let it happen
0: john paul white the record is beulah pick it up on amazon maybe even pick it up at an actual store and go to ouramericanetwork.org to catch and listen to all of our discussions with so many of the great artists songwriters actors and directors that we so love in our country